episode nine of the Chief Wellbeing Officer podcast. Um, I'm going to kick things off today, Rory, here, because uh, Stephen is off doing some high-altitude training on the beach in Capri. Um, this week, we've got Neil McIntosh with us. He's the head of BBC Online. So that's obviously a, a global enterprise. He has 8 million visitors um, a week. And in fact, 1 billion clicks a year is the sort of magnitude of the things that he's managing. And, you know, it's a great example of this disruptive world that we're living in. Because there's someone in the BBC that, that has to embrace the whole world of, of news reporting and, and journalism, but be on the vanguard also of, of modern technology, clicks, and, 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 and this technological side of life. And one thing we refer to in the book is the advent of technology, exponential technology, these trends which are absolutely changing the world, but also the need to stay human. And in fact, maybe there's a bigger role for humanity in this very technological world. Doomsday scenario is that the robots will take over. Our, our vision is more of a better world where technology is the tool, but more of a, a, human, a human world. The world of lifelong learning um, is, is something very much at the fore in, in education. And we have an online life and we have an offline life. And perhaps going forwards, we'll be thinking about an inline life of education, learning, technology, and of course, humanity. So back to Neil McIntosh. Um, he's going to talk about you know multimedia, um, convergence of industries, clicks, um, and things like that. And uh, great to have you with us. Episode nine. Here we go. So welcome to Chief Wellbeing Officer Neil. <laughs> um, so you're the man responsible for one billion clicks a year. <laughs> is that is that making us happier? We hope so, uh, and if not happier, certainly better informed as to things that might, may or may not be making you happy. Um, but certainly, yeah, a billion clicks is a lot, and it's going up as well. So the, the figures are quite impressive. I mean, that's the I think so. BBC Online, the third largest reach in the UK, online presence, eight million unique visitors per week, is it? That, that's the homepage, yeah. So one of the things I look after is the homepage, which uh, is at BBC Co UK. You don't see it overseas, so um, it's, the, it's, the, it's the UK facing bit. Mm -hmm. And we have about 8 million people come in every week, um, or 8 million devices, about 5 million people come and look at that homepage every week. And as you say, they click on a billion, billion items a year, um, or slightly more now. That's interesting. So, I mean, with a lot of the work in, in business these days and with companies on data analytics and, and people analytics, what, what are some of the things that you guys are measuring? Obviously, the number of clicks and number of unique visitors. What other things are of interest for you? Well, we used just to measure the number of people coming to the page and the number of people who'd been there that day. And not even the number of people. So we'd look at the number of essentially devices that had turned up. And so... Um, and we'd take that rough number and say, if it goes up, you're doing a great job, and if it goes down, well, events, and the summer holidays, never, never you're doing a bad job. Um, so when uh, the BBC is an extraordinary place in, in terms of the research it does, um, the uh, qualitative research it does around, for instance, um, the habits of the nation, and you learn when the nation, when, when you arrive at the BBC, as I did five years ago, you learn when the nation takes its dinner, 
and um, how things ebb and flow across the, the, the BBC online network through the course of the day. But in terms of actual live metrics and actually looking at what people are doing right now, it, was, um, it wasn't as fully developed as some other places. So that's one of the things we worked on. And, and, and that's where that click metric came from, as a, a proxy really for interest. Are we converting people's interest into something, into clicking or something? Yeah. And, and it's interesting when you talk about the ebb and flow of a nation, and it's something that, that we actually talk about in the book. Um, coming from Scotland originally, and then moving to Spain, Spain very much has societal habits that are very market. So if you, if you want to go to the supermarket when it's quiet, you know, you go at 2 p.m. and everyone's <laughs> having their lunch, and mm. you know, there's certain things that you know for sure that people are going to be doing or not be doing, right? Um, and I feel it was more market than, than, than back home, but maybe, maybe that's different, I don't know. But in terms of the habits and the ebb and flow of your, your visitors, any interesting insights there that maybe surprised you? I mean, cup of tea at 5 p.m. perhaps, or putting the kettle on, or I don't know, but what other things has come out? You're constantly surprised when you delve into the numbers. So um, one of the surprising things is we're getting up earlier as a nation, and um, people are obviously looking to their mobile phones as soon as you leap out of bed, and we uh, talked about this uh, while I've been here in Barcelona this week, um, that habit of last thing at night and first thing in the morning. Um, that's behavior, an extension of behavior that some people think grew really out of 9-11 and that, and that sort of apocalyptic moment at the start of the century where um, we always talk about, we used to talk about the laugh at the world ending. There was actually a gen, there was also a sense at that point people wanted to check on homepages to see if the world was ending. And it's hard to see what dramatic news was happening now had the world changed that much. And as a whole, we were all at that point sort of suddenly reconditioned to expect that extraordinary and dreadful things might happen. It's going very gloomy, but that, that, that kind of shock to the system did change behavior. And so one of the things we do expect is that people come in to sort of check the world still on its axis and that things are as they, as they expect them to be. What we aim to do, of course, on the BBC, BBC's homepage is confirm that, hopefully, but also offer some worthwhile onward journeys and certainly to brief them what's going on. So first thing in the morning, it's very much of a briefing, catching you up with anything that's happened overnight, preparing you for the day ahead. We, um, we, we have a morning brief section on the page which kind of gets you set up. And then as the day wears on, um, people are looking for more um, uh, you know, sort of longer reads, softer reads. Um, and into the evening, of course, you get sport. And, and our biggest weeks are often the weeks when you get Champions League in the evenings. And, There'll be very high traffic all the way through as people actually follow Champions League matches, not on the TV, but on BBC Sport, on the, just the text updates, because they maybe don't have access to the pay-per-view um, TV. So you get a feel for all these flows through the course of the day, and, um, and then there are special events at the, the Royal Wedding we had very recently, where we, um, we actually sit there and plan quite carefully what we want to do around that, who we expect to have coming in, and what we might serve them, both around the event itself and so packing or other things we pack around that. No, that's really interesting, just, you know, the strategy that you're employing for different parts of the day. And certainly, for me, it's been a valuable source of checking in. I, you know, I always think about when I first moved to Spain, which was 2003, you know, there wasn't really a lot there. And, and I did feel that I was far from home because we didn't have the kind of mm. sophisticated level of online news that we do today. I know things like The Guardian, I know you've worked there previously also on BBC and especially BBC Sport has been a valuable source for me, um, checking in to see if Celtic are doing well and, and, and all the rest of it. So there's this part of being informed, which of course is an important part of BBC's mission. Um, it's not just like many of the other new 
let's say, news outlets that are there to attract traffic or clickbait or, or entertain. Um, and in terms of well-being, you know, that's important you say the world is still on, their axis, on its axis, being informed, not missing out. The other thing, of course, recently is, is the whole aspect of, of fake news. I mean, just generally your, your view on kind of controlling that and it's a big source of stress for people, I guess, and it's a big problem for journalism as, a, as an industry, right? I mean, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, so it's, so it's one of the highest priorities for our news division. And then if you look at the BBC's annual report, which just came out, um, you read through that the first sentence of the first paragraph around what we're doing this year is around um, we, we, we're going to tackle fake news. and. Um, the way we do that is by doing our jobs, by reporting the facts. And I think we have a think fact check where, where we, we do precisely that. We sort of challenge head on some of the um, some of the things that people might be passing around social media or they might be seeing, seeing in there. It's hard to control. Um, we're not in a position really to control it. A lot of it is being spread on social networks. And so I, I, personally, my view is that a big part of the job has to be to train some media literacy and to equip people to make their own judgments about what they're what they're reading, and, and figure out is this really true? Um, and of course, some people want to believe that the thing they're reading is true, um, or or pretend that they believe because it suits their politics or their worldview. Um, that's particularly challenging. It can be really frustrating and very uh, you know tough for journalists, for instance, who write stories that they know are true. They've sourced them. They've it's gone through an editorial process, and then they're told. That, you know, you're just writing fake news, just making this up, you're part of some grand conspiracy. And that can be really tough, but it's, it comes down with the territory. And the only way to fight it was some facts. It's fascinating. It reminds me of an illustration that did the rounds on social media in the last couple of years. It was um, two queues, and it was a really long queue for a person holding up a sign that says um, uh, comforting lies. And the other, the other, the other desk was uh, the uncomfortable truth. And, and, and no one is at the truth, right? Everyone was for the lies, that's what they wanted to believe. And it's interesting the point of media literacy, right? We're all becoming more experienced and consuming things online. Mm. And you'd hope that most of us would be able to distinguish between what's fake and what's real. But at the same time, technology is pushing fake news out to make it look even more real. Even things like the technology around taking someone's video footage and putting words to their mouths. And it's just, it's scary, right? Something extraordinary. I guess I'm a fairly cynical and, and well-rehearsed user of digital media, I fall for some of this stuff. I'm not, I'm not, I hope I'm not forwarding or retweeting it or anything like that. Certainly, you, you give something a second glance and then you go, oh, you muppet. <laughs> why, why on earth are you, why are you bringing that any credence at all? Quite clearly it's nonsense, but it's, um, you know, it, it's hard. And um, you, it's very hard to apply filters, especially in the social world where stuff can end up in your timeline <coughs> because someone else, someone close to you is, believes it and has um, you know, retweeted it or forwarded it into your timeline. It comes with that credibility of someone that you know is otherwise perfectly sensible and you know, well-read and smart and everything else. So it has a little grain of credibility because someone else recommended it to you. And, and it could be just that they're knackered at 11 o'clock at night yeah. and they don't think about it or, you know, and it absolutely. just it snowballs, right? Absolutely. It's, it, through it comes and, um, and, and you're left wondering about, about, <laughs> about yourself and that. <laughs> You've been, you know, a journalist all your career and, um, I'm interested in the whole area of, of, of health and well-being in journalism. So, to me, it's quite a, a, an invigorating field, I would imagine, that, that there's always some degree of freshness of discovery and creation, but also that it doesn't stop, right? And especially with 
you know, the 24-hour news channels starting, I don't know, now maybe 15, 20 years ago, or maybe more, I don't know. And then news is this, is this dynamic of always, always being there. Mm. What, what, what have you seen in, in, that, in that field, in, in your fellow journalists? Is that a healthy pursuit? <laughs> <laughs> I think it'd be fair to say that um, uh, health in, in newsrooms is an emerging field. Uh, um, it's, they're not traditionally healthy places. And although I've, so I've, been, I've been in and around newsrooms, I don't work in a newsroom right in, in this role now, but um, I started my career in, in news in, what, 1996, so caught the end of a fairly booze-fueled era. I uh, started in newspapers where we'd do an edition in the, in the middle of the day and have a three-hour break. We didn't go off to have a run in that three-hour break on a Saturday afternoon before the football results started coming. We all decamped to the pub. And um, the, the culture was all built around the pub. There were two right next to the staff entrance to the building, and, and that's where the social life played out um, among the staff, where the camaraderie was built. Was it the press bar? Was that one of them? This is in Edinburgh. Oh, so of course, it's, right. it's uh, um, a couple of places there. So uh, the railway walkers went to the, um, to the one below and jingling Geordie, that's where the, the, the journalists would go. The pub's still there, fine, uh, smarter than it used to be, because the, the journalists have all gone. They've had to win other, other trade. Anyway, I digress. So, um, not traditionally a healthy place. I think you see it changing. I think younger generations coming in are more health conscious, do drink less, um, have to work harder, frankly. I think they work longer hours, which is not healthy in itself, but probably keeps them out of the pub collectively. Um, so I think the industry has changed. Um, and I think managements are hopefully becoming more interested in the well-being of their staff and recognizing you can't just keep pressing. But you're part of the industry at least, much of it is in is contracting. So the pressure, the work pressure is growing on journalists and they have increasingly large areas to cover, um, more people to talk to, more stuff to write, and, and all that cranks up the pressure. Yeah, no, I, I see that. And I just mentioned the press bar there. You know, I was at university in 98, my undergraduate degree in 94, 95, and that was a, a, a frequent um, uh, stopping point for, for us and, and we would come up across a lot of the journalists from the Glasgow Herald yeah. and the Evening Times and unfortunately it's, it's no longer there but it was a, it was a great pub. Um, looking at change, you know, just you, you mentioned starting in newspapers in 96 and I noticed that it was very interesting, you, you, you've long been a pioneer in digital tech um, and, and you had a weekly column in 1997, I think, with yes. a Scotsman on what is the internet, and, and you were one of the first journalists to write about blogs and, and Web 2.0 and all these different things. So you've long been at the vanguard of, of technological change. A lot of what we talk about in the book is that we're, we're at an inflection point in history where whatever you want to call it, Fourth Industrial Revolution or you know, the coming artificial intelligence revolution, that there really is going to be exponential change moving forward. I mean. How do you see technology? Do you think it really is getting substantially faster? Or yeah. is there a lot of hype there? What, what do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, so the thing that brings me to Barcelona this week is an EBU course, which is being um, run through, through um, IESE. I'll get the initials mixed up there. Um, uh, it's, it's sort of to equip media executives with um, the tools to sort of cope with this. And one of the overwhelming themes of this these few days, for me at least, has been just the, the complexity and the pace and the challenge that presents to media organisations just in the way they're, they're managed and, and in the way you, you cope with this stuff coming in. Um, I, think the, I, mean, I think the answers are probably, you have to accept the complexity and think bigger in terms of the solutions that you know, you're looking at. It's become increasingly hard to try and fix 
particular problems by yourself or in very small groups. We have maybe to work collectively more. Um, but yeah, the, the, the pace is, is picking up extraordinarily and developing in ways that we just didn't foresee. And the importance of completely new engines or engines that are doing something completely different 20 years ago, like Netflix, um, is, uh, yeah, is, is extraordinary. Yeah, no, it's an, an exciting time. And, and just finally, I mean, I, I guess a lot of the people that we talk to on this podcast, they're always interested to see or understand a lot of their personal journey. So, you know, you study in Edinburgh, mm-hmm. and I think quite a common or, or well-trodden path for, you know, maybe a talented, ambitious Scot that ends up in London, which I think many have done over the years. Um, you know, looking back, was, was there any, you know, keys for you or, or, or you know, your time in London? What, what, what do you, how do you see the future going out? I don't know if that's a question at all, <laughs> but it's just a thing in your personal journey, right? Well, I've been extremely fortunate. I, I'm, I've worked for some fantastic titles. Um, even starting, I started the Edinburgh Evening News, which was, was still is it's vibrant um, local paper, and, and you, you learn there about the connection of media with um, and the importance of media to people locally, and you see the impact of, of what, what you do close up. And then working at the Guardian for nearly ten, nigh on ten years, which where I got a license to go around, trail around the world. Um, uh, exploring interesting things and talking to fascinating people and looking at the, the resurrection of Apple computer under Steve Jobs and writing the blogs and finding these guys, people using these scrappy little content management systems which suddenly allowed you to publish to a theoretically unlimited audience on the web without having a legion of mainly blokes in, white, in the metaphorical white jackets tending a, a supercomputer that you just actually spark this thing up right where you want and reach an audience. Now we've discovered that there's Two sides to that particular coin. It's the ledge sword, rather, but um, still interesting and extraordinarily liberating and powerful. Um, so re- all the way through, really, it's been excitement to discovering these new things and realizing fairly early on there's probably no point having much of a career plan because everything's changing so fast that um, all you can really be doing is say, like, "Where's where, where can you have an impact and have some fun and do interesting stuff?" Um, so I mean that that and. Insofar as that's a journey, I suppose hopefully on traveling forward and, and, and doing interesting things. But it's been it's been absolutely fascinating. And I think the next five years, especially for public service media, which is now my my big focus, are going to be so important and so critical. But there's still an opportunity to do some really interesting stuff and secure the future of public service media and do something that is fundamentally different from what, say, the big um, Californian tech giants are up to. You know, we, we talked at the very start of our conversation about clicks. What if public service media says, actually, you know what, we're going to try and develop a more ethical experience. It's not entirely optimised around the little dopamine rushes and the next clip. That we might actually try and do something that, not to tell you to turn the thing off, but something to do something more fruitful than just clicking the next thing. Um, there's all sorts of potential there. And, and some of my colleagues at UBC are doing fascinating research around the, what these ethical experiences might, might add up to and what we have, we'd have to do to build them into the product we're creating. So I think there's, there's huge opportunity for public service media to be doing something different and something that's um, adding value and quality to um, citizens' lives and doing something important for society. Um, so an extraordinary, a really exciting time ahead. No, that's fascinating. It was really good to hear also about looking out for that. Um, so best of luck with that. Thank you. Thanks for your time uh, this evening and, and enjoy the rest of your time in Barcelona. Well, thank you. Cheers.